We are continuing our series in the book of Corinthians, and I have the privilege of preaching through 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. So if you can find that in your Bibles and go ahead and stand to your feet, we will read God's word together. I'm going to start in verse 1, and we'll read to verse 16. This is God's word. It says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife Or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair off or cut it short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You may be seated. Well, clothing manufacturers make clothes, and they make clothes for a certain purpose, and they make clothes a certain way. For instance, a shirt is made with sleeves. It's made for the upper body. It has sleeves that were created for arms and not a person's legs. It has a hole for the head to go in, and it's not made for a person's waist, Pants were created for the lower part of the body. It has inseams for our legs to go into. Pants have a waistline that should fit snugly around our waist in order for them to stay in place. The waist on a pair of pants isn't the same as a collar in a shirt. In other words, pants aren't to be worn as a shirt, and a shirt are not to be worn as pants. No matter how hard you try to crisscross the two items, they were created a certain way. Friends, clothing, if you'll think about it, fit our body the way our bodies were created. When you try to wear them in a way that they were not created to be worn, then you're you're not being faithful to the design, and the pieces of clothing will not complement one another. Take a a button-down shirt, for example. There are buttons and holes that complement one another. And when me and Andrew were teaching Salem and Titus how to dress themselves when they were much younger, 
they would inevitably get the buttons and holes out of order. I'm sure every parent in here knows that. They'll come back to you with some buttons and holes and some buttons out of the holes. At first, they thought that they were doing a really good job, and we would commend them for that attempt. But by the end, they had a lot of holes with no buttons in them. Now, what was happening in this process? Well, they weren't starting off well. <clears throat> now, they were young, and they were learning, and so no worries. But still, the design remained the way it was created. The shirt was created to be worn in a certain way. Now, friends, the topic that we're going to be discussing here this morning, I believe overall this captures the sentiment that Paul has. Church, it all comes back to design. How has God designed men and women to function in society at large, in the home, and more particularly in the gathering of God's people? Can the Bible that we have here before us this morning, can it be trusted? Can the author of the Bible be trusted? Can God be trusted? God forbid he ever lie to us. Now, it's obvious that this is a very relevant text this morning that we're going to be talking about, but it's also a very controversial text, especially in our day when things are so confusing when it comes to gender when it comes to gender. The roles that gender have, genders have, is given to us by God himself. But if, if, if God can be trusted, if God is all wise, if God loves us, then he had in his mind a perfect design within which men and women might experience human flourishing. And friend, if this is true, then submitting to those designs and learning to live within the inseams of his will, that is where you and I as human beings will glorify God. Listen to a quote from Kathy Keller. She says, justice or fairness is whatever God decrees. So whether or not you are able to see justice in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much trust you have in God's character. If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, or your name on the cracked lips? And if God can be trusted, then gender roles with all of God's good gifts to human beings are to be rejoiced in and enjoyed, not endured or resented. So this is what we're after here this morning. We want to know what pleases God when the church is gathered together. We want to know how to deflect attention from ourselves so that God is the center, that Christ is the center, that he is the one that stands in the center of our gatherings. We don't want anything to be confused, and we don't want anything to hinder a fresh sight of who he is. We want to be built up, and we know that the only way to be built up is for our eyes to be off of each other and on Christ. The name of the sermon is The Christian Community at Worship. Now, in order for us to start off well, we must begin with the designs that God has given us in his word. So we're going to think about these, this topic in three sections. The first section is going to be called Maintaining Freedom. 
We're going to see these truths in verses 2 through 6. The second section is called divine designs, verses 3 and 7 through 12. And the third section is called the glory of Christ when we gather, verses 13 through 16. Number one, maintaining freedom. Now, in the last couple of chapters, Paul has been treating issues like how should the Christians exercise their rights and liberties outside of the Christian community. But here in the preceding chapters, Paul switches gears and begins treating questions about how Christians are to exercise their liberties and rights inside of the Christian community. Now, if you've read the book of Acts at any length, you know that Paul spent 18 months in Corinth planting and establishing this church. And while he was there, as we see in verse 2, he delivered to them a body of teaching. Okay, he says traditions. These were truths that Paul taught the churches in every place that he went. These were instructions. He's, he's passing on doctrine to every church orally. Okay? These truths were essential to the Christian life. For instance, further down in verse 23 of this chapter, if you can look there, Paul tells them in regard to communion, he says, What I received from the Lord, I delivered to you. And then again in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, he reminds them of essential gospel truths. Truths about what God did in Christ to save us from our sins. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And again, this was common for Paul in every church that he went. And even though, as we've seen, this church in Corinth has been in turmoil for its excesses, it has maintained this body of truth that Paul left them with. They have held on to the essential teachings, and Paul commends them for that there. Now, however, in verse 3, we see by the word but that he is getting ready to move away from commendation into more of a rebuke. Look at verse 3 again. He says, but I would have you to know or understand and by saying this, he's getting ready to tell them something exceptionally difficult, exceptionally important. It's going to be hard for them to receive, hard for them to hear, possibly. And what Paul is getting ready to pass on to them is in response to the confusion about men and women praying or prophesying with their heads covered or uncovered in the gathered assembly. This teaching that Paul is getting ready to transfer to them wasn't a part of the previous teaching that he left them with while there. Now, I want to give you a brief, some brief context into which Paul is speaking. Paul says there in verse 4, he says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Some men were wearing head coverings, or some men were growing their hair really long in a way that reflected the feminine look or clothing style worn by pagans involved in idolatrous worship. And then in verse 5, Paul says, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, what in the world is going on here? It can be very confusing. Well, the men and women were deliberately choosing to go against the cultural norms or practices of that day of wearing their hair up or going without a covering of some sort on their head during worship. And in particularly, 
the women in their newly experienced freedom that they have found in Christ, as they were praying or prophesying, would allow their hair to hang down on their shoulders. Now, in this culture, that signified that they were available, that they were there for the taking. Now, I want to point out, though, between these two verses, the equality and the interdependence found in verse 4 was unheard of during Paul's day. Women had the freedom to participate in worship. This was a challenge for that day to its hierarchical society. These scriptures assume that the women, they prayed and they prophesied when the church gathered. Now, this prophesying Paul speaks of here is different than the teaching role found in 1 Timothy 3 that is to be held by a male who is an elder. And the way he uses the word here is not telling the future, but it has to do with taking revealed truth, truth that Paul delivered to them, which is doctrine, and applying it to real life. Women had a part in the worship gathering. Not like in Jewish temples, where women could not do anything in regards to worship. Only the men could. The women were learning to live out of their lives as image bearers of God. They had found this freedom in Christ. But, but it's good to remember about this church. It's a young church, and these were newly converted Christians coming out of a godless culture, and they were simply learning what it meant to live the Christian life. But there was beginning to be some confusion between the genders in this community. Now, Paul is not encouraging them to abandon their freedoms, but simply to further develop those freedoms. Because his desire, and it's my desire as well, that we flourish. Paul wanted these relationships, men and women, husband and wife, to flourish in this church. The same could be said about Grace City Church, right? So, so we gather as a diverse community made up not of class, made up not of ethnicity, but made up of different people from different backgrounds. And we can approach God freely because of Christ. Freely because of Christ. And we know that we have been made in the image of God. But though men have been made, men and women have been made in the image of God and redeemed by Christ, and we know that we are equal before God, that doesn't mean that all differences between genders may be blurred or become obsolete. That's what our culture is trying to do, right? Blur the genders. You can't really tell who's who and what's what. Well, Paul, in our text, gives us a hint of his theological understanding of headship in verse 3. Paul is for individual freedom in the worshiping community. But how should that freedom work itself out between the genders? What does that look like as men and women to live our lives as Christians within the worshiping community? Well, in this next section, he gives us his ideas, his thoughts, his teaching on our relational responsibilities. Number two, section two is called divine designs. Look with me at verse three. Notice the word head there. The Greek word for head is kephel. This word normally was understood to have two meanings, which were source, 
or origin, like the source of a river. That's one meaning. Or it could mean authority. Now, which one is Paul using here? Well, if, if we use option one, then that means that Christ, if we read the last part of that verse, which says the head of Christ is God, follow me, that means that God created Christ. If God is the source of Christ, if God is the origin of Christ, then we are essentially saying that God made Christ. And if we hold that meaning of that word, then we're falling into the ancient Arian heresy that claimed that God created Christ. But, but we know that Scripture teaches that Christ is the eternal Son of God, that Christ is co-equal with God, existing from eternity past. So based off this understanding of the Scripture, it can't mean source. It has to mean authority. Now let's use that meaning of the word and read verse 3 again. He says, but I want you to understand that the authority of every man is Christ. The authority of a wife is her husband, and the authority of Christ is God. Do you see what's going on here, church? Paul is rooting the relational responsibilities of men and women within the Trinity, and he's showing that the authority of a husband over his wife is not meant to denigrate not meant to downplay or threaten her in any way. Now, how? How, though? Well, because Christ has a head. <laughs> Christ has an authority as well. In the incarnation of Christ, the Son willingly, freely, joyfully submits himself to the Father. Listen to what one commentator says. He says, in the Trinity, the Father... Son and the Spirit are equal in being and essence, but they willingly choose to fulfill different functions and roles for the purpose of communicating communal love. Wow. Communal love. Seen in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, willingly submitting himself to God the Father, taking on human flesh. Jesus said, I always do what I see the Father do. Paul, for us, in this text, is highlighting the tremendous display of Jesus Christ's humility, of his, of his strength in the subordination to the will of the Father. Now, my question is, does this sound weak or inferior? It doesn't sound weak or inferior. Paul is, is establishing the design that you and I should follow as well. It's the way God himself has chosen to function within the Godhead. And shouldn't we? Shouldn't we get our example from the Trinity? As difficult as it may be, be, be to work that out in our lives, one of the fallacies in modern feminist ideology is that for people to be equal, they must do the same thing. But you can have differentiation and authority in relationships without having inferiority and superiority of dignity or value. Within the Godhead, there is equality 
with order and authority. Right? That's what we see in the Trinity. It doesn't denigrate these things. It holds them in perfect tension when we look at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in the way that they function in their community. But it seems as if Paul in verse 7, though, is backpedaling on the very truth he's trying to establish. Does Paul mean in verse 7, which we're going to read, that woman is not made in the image of God when he says, here's the verse, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. No, church. No. The female woman is made in the image of God, but he's also the glory of Adam. Eve was created because Adam lacked something. God created the woman. When he looked at Adam, he saw lack, even though Adam was perfect. God created Eve for his lack. Eve was the glory of Adam, and she was the image of God. In Genesis 2.23, Adam says, with joy, I'm sure, as he looked at his wife, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. When God looks at man, he sees his own image. When man looks at woman, he sees the image of God and his own glory at the same time. Notice how Paul says she is the glory of man. She is his glory because she was taken out of him and because she was made for him. This is amazing truth. Both in her origins, verse 8, and in her purpose, verse 9, woman corresponds to the man. Now, this is not to say that women are supposed to be household slaves and are only created for mothering our children. No, no. When Scripture says for him, it means for his sake, for his benefit. Now, ladies, listen to this. Whether you're a wife or single, your purpose as a woman is to help your male counterpart subdue the earth with the glory of God as you willingly submit to the divine order, amazingly displayed in the self-giving love of the Son of God when he submitted to the Father's will. That's your purpose. It is a beautiful purpose. Marred in our world, in our culture, but biblically, scripturally, beautiful when it's acted out. Church, is this a first century teaching that needs to be adjusted for relevancy? Most in our culture would say, with a cuss word, yeah. Yeah, it needs to be adjusted. That is not right. That is not the way humans were created. But dear church, this teaching God gave to Adam pre-fall before sin had ever entered into the world. This is the pattern. These are the divine threads that God used to stitch us together as human beings. And if we want relationships between the sexes to thrive, then we must start off well. Remember the, the button-down shirt? If you try to start at the wrong button, the wrong hole, you'll end up at the bottom all out of order. Aren't we out of order in our culture? 
people ask the question, why? What has happened? My friends, because we've deviated. We've adjusted what the Bible says about why we were created and who we are in the image of God. We must start in the very heart of the Trinity. We must look to where the ideal relationship and community exists in the Godhead. Now, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, believes that this should be noticeable when we gather as a church. Because when it does, man brings glory to his head and woman brings glory to her head. The desire in Paul's heart is to ensure that the worshiping community at Corinth is done in decent and in order. Now, man, just in case we feel puffed up, and maybe full of ourselves about us being created first and woman being taken out of our side. Paul says something striking in verse 11 and 12. Look at it there. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And Paul here captures not the independence of men and women, but the interdependence that God has woven into the very fabric of gender. Here Paul safeguards his teaching by highlighting our union, not only with each other, but primarily because we are in union, as verse 11 says, with the Lord. The playing ground in terms of salvation is equal. All of us are brought into relationship with God by faith in Christ Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, and we have nothing to boast about. However, in our genders, this works itself out. It humbles ourselves to start there, to look at it in that way because we are in union with God through faith in Christ. So we have nothing to boast about. At the end of that verse, it says, all things are from God. And I think that innately we all know this to be true. And Paul says such in verse 14. Look at, there. Look at it there. He says, doesn't nature itself teach you? Men and women are different and are to look different. And those differences, as I've stated, have their foundations in the created order and, in this context, in the Greco-Roman society. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But, but in the worship community, freedom in Christ is to be celebrated. It's to be maintained. But it's to be celebrated and maintained within the framework of how God has created us as men and women. Now, I started off this message saying that we want to deflect attention from ourselves so that Christ is front and center. Which brings us to our last section, the glory of Christ when we gather. The focal point during our worship, it matters. What we're looking at when we gather, it really does matter. Anything that distracts us from seeing Christ when we gather together should be set aside. And this is what Paul is after in verses 4 and 5 there. His argument hinges on the uses of the word head in those two verses. Now, I've already established that the word head is used by Paul to mean authority, so I'm not going to highlight that again, but look at verses 4 and 5 one more time. He says, Every man who prophesies or prays with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, 
since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, Paul here is using head in a physical and in a metaphorical sense. Okay? Verse 3 gives us clarity. He says, Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of the wife. And then Paul goes on to discuss whether or not one's physical head should be covered in worship. In other words, what he's doing is he means that the heads of our bodies symbolize a spiritual head. And that determines whether or not the head should be covered. The head of the woman represents her metaphorical head, the man. And therefore, it should be covered in worship in Corinth, in that culture. So, as not to scandalize the church, in that culture, head coverings in the Greco-Roman world was common for women to wear head coverings. It was a part of decorum. It was a part of the tradition. The women, in their moments of expressing their freedom in Christ, would allow their head covering to come off and their hair would be hanging down to their shoulders. And I told you that that signified that they were available. This was scandalizing the church. This was causing a distraction when the people of God would gather together. And the men were wearing effeminate clothing. The men had long hair, some of them. The men were covering their face when they would pray and prophesy. This was being a distraction in that culture. Friends, Christ must never be obscure. Christ must never be hidden. He must always be front and center during our gatherings. Our eyes should never be on one another. And we more than likely will never have to deal with the question of whether or not to wear a head covering in our gatherings. But we will have to examine our hearts when it comes to maintaining a Christ-centered decorum. Now, now what I mean by that word decorum is when we gather in worship, we should do so in a manner that's consistent with what we are called to be as defined by God. Friends, we should look like what we are. We should look like what we are and not try to be something that we're not. We should be governed by humility and submission to appropriate authorities in moderation. And very simply put, we need to think about how our conduct as men and women might bring honor or shame upon each other and our spiritual head. Now, the problem at Corinth was a role reversal. The men were covering their heads and the wives were uncovering their heads. And the irony was that they were doing what the other sex was meant to do. They brought shame upon themselves and the glory that belonged to God alone was deflected away from him and they became the centerpiece, not him. So church, let me ask you the question. How do we regain or recovery, recover glory how, how, do we, how do we recover the glory of Christ in our gathering? How do we lay aside everything that would distract us in our worship gatherings? Do we look at our roles and functions? Do those things distract us when we come together? We must look into our heart and ask ourselves, what's distracting me from hearing the gospel? Is it something that someone else is doing? How someone is doing it? 
Church, in order for us to recover the glory of Christ, we must recapture the Christology that Paul has embedded in our text. And very simply, that is that Jesus, the Son of God, manifested his equality with God, the Father, precisely in fulfilling a role of subordination to him. The Son did not have to submit to the Father. Jesus was not pressured to give up his life. He, he willingly submitted in order to secure our salvation. And so personal deference and self-giving are a part of the fabric of the one who designed us. It's a part of the Godhead. Deference, humility, a willing to submit ourselves. Submission in our culture is a bad word. Submission in the Godhead is a beautiful word. When you look at it, the way God displayed it when he sent Jesus and Jesus was willing to defer. Jesus was willing to submit and take on human flesh and live among those he created. And you see Jesus as the example throughout his ministry. In Philippians chapter 2, it says this. Listen to this. says, let us have the same attitude among ourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Jesus could have exercised his authority over all things, and he did at moments, but Jesus was willingly submitting himself to God's will when he came to heaven, from heaven to earth to save us. We should follow in suit. Will this be hard? Yes, it will be hard. Will we often fail to display this? Most certainly. But the blueprint that we see within the Trinity offers us a picture into what redeemed human relationships might look like. And friends, when we look closely at this relationship between the Father and the Son... It clears away the fog that hinders us from seeing the differences in role and function within the home and within the church. So church, together, as Grace City Church, we must fight to maintain our liberties in Christ. But we must do it within God's designs. How has God made us, male and female, what are the roles and functions that God has given us in Scripture that you and I are to follow? And we also not only maintain our freedom, but do this within the designs that God has given us. We must lay aside every distraction when we gather in order for us to see the glory of Christ our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beautiful designs that you have created in men and women. Thank you that you have made us in your image. Thank you that you have given each one of us roles and functions. Lord, and as we learn to live out our freedom in Christ, I pray that we would always be deferring, always be willing to lay aside our rights. Help us, Lord, free us with this scriptural truth, if there have been things that any of us have been struggling with when it comes to understanding male and female, 
and the way our relationships are to function. I just want to pray that it would clear away, that you would free us, Lord, to, to experience the beauty of gender, the way that it is given to us in Scripture. And God, I want to pray you would protect our children. I want to pray that you would protect those who are going to college. I want to pray that you would protect those kids who, who are around friends, who have embraced the cultural aroma of fluidity. I want to pray, Lord, that, that you would draw men and women who have a dysphoria about their gender and that you would help them come to the cross where, Jesus, you bore someone else's sins in your body. You, of all people, understand dysphoria. I don't understand what it would feel like to have someone else's sins put upon me. But Jesus, you're able to enter into the weaknesses and the brokenness of those who struggle with gender dysphoria. You're able to heal the wounds and you're able to free us to embrace us being either a man or a woman and to live within the freedom that you've made us, given us in Christ Jesus. And God, I pray that you would minister to those who are confused, who are struggling immensely. Would you draw near to them by your spirit? I want to pray for husbands and wives. I want to pray that our husbands and wives would see the beauty of the different roles and the different functions within marriage. I want to pray for our gatherings, that you would help us to embrace the roles and functions that we see all around us. That, Lord, we would not look at, look at it as a bad thing when we think about submission. I want to pray that we would embrace that from what the Scriptures teach it to be. And, God, help us to ever look into the heart of the Trinity. Help us to meditate on the Son who willingly submitted himself to the Father's will and took on flesh and dwelt among us. For it's there where we saw his glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name.